Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central, which is not in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but instead in temporary studios in a place called Sweetser, Indiana. We're here. We were there for Thursday night, and we had a great time of studying the prophetic word of God. I'm going to be speaking Sunday morning. They have two services on Sunday morning, 8.15 and 10.30. I'll be speaking at both of them. Same message, so if you can come over, I'll have to be up in the middle of the night for the 8.15 message, uh, but you can come over for the later one if you would like to. It'll be a Christmas message. I'll not be speaking Sunday night because the church has a great Christmas program in store for everybody in the area. This is a wonderful church. We've been here already once this year, asked to come back for the Christmas time. Hope you can come and join us as we study Bible prophecy here in Sweetser, Indiana. And uh, this is our location. Come and join us for study of the Christmas relationship to Bible prophecy. All right, we're going to take on the opportunity now to talk with many of our broadcast partners all across the world. But first we go to Ken Timmerman. He covers geopolitical activities, and we find Ken not in the United States. He's in Europe. He's in Georgia, not the state of Georgia, but the country, the nation of Georgia up in the mountains. And Ken, how do we find you here? What's the purpose for your travels to Georgia? Well, actually, Jimmy, I'm here working with an Iranian defector uh, who has been a witness to Iran's involvement in the September 11th attacks. He is being attacked by the Iranian regime. They have fabricated a court case against him and got him sentenced in a Georgian court to 17 years. Uh, This is absolutely outrageous. I'm here to help defend him and to get him out of jail. This man is a witness to the truth. He's not a Christian, but he is a witness to the truth. And I've got to tell you one thing, Jimmy, it's very hard for me to communicate to him. I have sent him letters in the courtroom, but I've also sent him a gospel of Jesus Christ, because I believe that he is ready to come to Jesus in his despair and in the 18 months of solitary confinement that he has been subjected to. So I have a double mission, if you wish. I have a journalistic and a legal mission, and I also have a mission to to bring the word of Jesus to this person, perhaps to save him. I hope I can save him. Well, praise the Lord. What a great mission to be on, and all of our listeners coming to this broadcast today to hear what you have to say are going to be praying for him and for you as you continue your mission, both politically and spiritually there in the nation of Georgia up there in the mountains. Well, thinking about Iran, the Israeli foreign minister this week said, Ken, that bombing Iran to stop its nuclear program is an option on the table. That's not been heard from in a quite a period of time. What are your thoughts? Well, he was speaking openly, Mr. Katz, and it's uh, certainly true. But also, Jimmy, let's be clear. He said this is a last option. It's on the table, but it is a last option. This is not what the Israelis want to do, but it is an option if it must be done, if the Europeans do not act, if the Americans do not act. He was particularly critical of the Europeans because of their... Uh, continued support for this bad Iran deal that allows the Iranians to modernize their nuclear weapons manufacturing capability, their ability to make 
enriched uranium for a nuclear warhead. So he said, look, you Europeans, if you do not crack down on Iran, if you do not stop shipments from your companies in Europe to Iran to help their uranium centrifuge equipment, we will consider a military strike on Iran to wipe out their nuclear weapons program. So don't make us do it. We will if we have to, but don't make us do it. Well, of course, Iran would react immediately to this statement by the Israeli foreign minister. They said they will give a crushing response to any Israeli aggression. Now, they're talking seriously about this. Is that bravado, or do you think they can really do it? No, they are talking seriously, and as we've mentioned on this broadcast, they have their proxies in the region, and they have many of them. They have uh, Hamas in Gaza with tens of thousands of rockets aimed at Israel and mortars, and they fire them off constantly. They have Hezbollah in Lebanon. They have their forces in Syria. And now they have new militia groups in Iraq with longer-range missiles. Iran's goal is to essentially create not just proxy forces, but proxy governments. They're trying to take over the governments of Iraq and of Syria and to make them part of Iran. They see them as part of a greater uh, Shia crescent in the Middle East, And they're hoping to mobilize all Muslim forces in the Middle East against Israel. I think they will have problems with this, but that is their goal. And when they say, we will attack Israel, they're serious. They have forces that are capable of doing this. And one of those proxies would be Hezbollah located in southern Lebanon. However, the official Lebanese officials are protesting Iran's threat to attack Israel from Lebanon. So one of those proxies may have a little bit of a problem. Well, the problem is for the Lebanese government, unfortunately. Hezbollah has pretty much free reign in Lebanon. I was there in 2006 in the last war. That's, it's 13 years ago. Things have gotten worse since then. Hezbollah was able to unleash a war against Israel, which led to massive destruction of Lebanese infrastructure, of power infrastructure, of roads, of bridges. And now you have a a caretaker government that has been, um, the government resigned because of popular protests against the Iranian occupation and influence in Lebanon. This is a really, it's actually a very positive thing, uh, if you wish, Jimmy, because it shows that the people of Lebanon are rising up against the Iranian influence. So the prime minister in interim, Prime Minister Saad Hariri, is saying, look, we don't want the Iranians here. We don't want them getting us into a new war, just as they got us into a war in 2006. We don't control it. And they're trying to tell the Israelis, please don't hit us, because we don't want the war. It's the Iranians who want the war. But I'm afraid that you know Israel will react as they must react when they see missile attacks coming against them in Israel from Lebanon. They will hit the Lebanese targets, and they will hit Lebanese infrastructure. And just as in 2006, which I saw on the ground in Haifa and along the border between Israel and Lebanon, the Israelis will make the Lebanese people pay a price because they are complicit in this. They they say they don't want to be, but they are because they have never thrown Hezbollah out of their midst. Ken, we cannot have a conversation without bringing up our old buddy Tayyip Erdogan. They're the president of Turkey. 
He bashed Israel this week in a major speech, and then he called on the Muslim world to unite against the West. Now, I would imagine he was talking about Israel, but is he also talking about the entire West, the European Union, and the United States? He, he is, Jimmy. And, and what's going to be interesting is to see how the Europeans respond to this. We've seen this radical uptick in Erdogan's rhetoric against not just the United States, not just against Israel, but against the West in general. He wants to be the leader of the new caliphate, the Muslim caliphate, against the West. Uh, So how will the Europeans react to this? You know, you've got something like two million Turkish Muslims who've immigrated uh, into Germany, and I think they have actually emigrated to Germany to take the country over. That's what the Turks themselves say. They're trying to take over Germany. Uh, What's going to be interesting to watch going forward is whether the Europeans push back. So far, they have not. They're welcoming the Turks. They are being cautious about Erdogan. Uh, the, The one leader who stood up to him the most has been the French President Macron, and that I find a little bit surprising and refreshing. Looking forward, we're going to see whether the Europeans do push back against Turkey, but I think that fight is going to be led by the French. Yes, it may well be. We'll stay on top of that story also. Last weekend, we talked about Turkey joining in partnership with some portion of the operation there in Libya, whichever side you may understand. He is trying to take it to take control of the Mediterranean. But now I see a headline saying that Turkey's next military target is going to be Libya. What does this all mean? Well, so we talked about this last week. I think we were among the first to to talk about this, Jimmy, where the Turkish government is trying to exercise a a maritime exclusion zone across uh, the Mediterranean from Turkey to Libya that would include all of the natural gas, the undersea natural gas and oil deposits offshore of Israel, offshore of Cyprus, and offshore of Libya. It's absolutely absurd. It is ridiculous. It is unacceptable. But that is what Erdogan is trying to do. (laughs) And should the Western powers, and I don't mean the United States really, in this case it's more the Europeans, should we allow them to get away with this? Turkey will become an energy superpower, which today they definitely are not. So this is a, it's a power play by the Turks. It's in the early, early phases. I think it's possible still for the Israelis and the Europeans and the Americans to push back against this. But nobody's got their eye on this. We are the only ones really who've been talking about this. And, you know, it's really important for the Western powers to push back and not allow Turkey to claim vast areas of the Mediterranean as their territorial waters and allow them to exploit the oil and gas because it's huge amounts of oil and gas that are there. Friends, did you hear what Ken said? We're the only ones talking about it. The cutting edge of news geopolitically around the world when I talk with my broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, who we find today in the nation of Georgia on a very special mission. Ken will be praying that as you talk with this prisoner, this witness, We'll pray that he come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thanks for being available. I'm glad we were able to make communications happen here in our conversation with you today. God bless. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. And thanks to all of our listeners who can pray for Ali Reza. That's his name. Pray for Ali Reza in his prison. 
We'll certainly do that for sure. Friends, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He's got a Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. By the way, when you're at my website, go to my Prophecy Bookstore, a special deal for Christmas from Prophecy Today. We have the Prophetic Book Essential 3-Pack. Now, that is great because these three books are essential for your understanding of Bible prophecy. The book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation. Those are the three books. I have commentaries written on all three of these, the most important books in the Bible prophetically because all other prophetic passages of Scripture dovetail into these three books. Each one addresses God's plan for a different strand of the human family. Daniel for the Gentiles, Ezekiel for the Jews, and Revelation for the Christians. In this special offer, you will receive my studies of these three special books, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, Daniel, a prophet to the Gentiles, Ezekiel, the man in the message, and Revelation, a chronology. Normal price, $45. We're going to give it to you for only $30. Let me remind you to buy right now. And by the way, when you're thinking about it, please prayerfully consider making us a part of your end-of-the-year giving. Those who partner with us keep the ministry of Prophecy Today moving forward. To donate your tax-deductible gift, please visit prophecytoday.com forward slash partners or call us at 8-PROPHECY-8, that's 877-674-3200. And thank you very much. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're here in Sweetser, Indiana. I'm here. I spoke on Thursday night. We'll speak Sunday morning, a major Christmas message from the prophetic word of God. We're here at Liberty Baptist Church, an exciting church. The reason I'm not speaking Sunday night is because of their great Christmas program they're going to be doing. Judy and I are going to adopt Liberty Baptist in order to be able to be a part of the services on Sunday night. But if you're in the area, love to invite you to come over for Sunday morning, 8.15 and 10.30. It's the same message I'll give both services to preach my Christmas message. Well, I promised we'd go to David Dolan. David is the man who covers the Middle East. He's done this type of a thing as a journalist for over 30 years, and he knows what's going on. And David, I guess the top story has to be the Israelis are going to a third election in one year. That is historic, is it not? It is, Jimmy. In fact, we had never had two elections in the same year like we've already had this year. And to follow it up with the third round, it's going to be on March 2nd. 
is unprecedented, historic, but a real balagan, as uh, you sometimes say, the Hebrew word for a mess, political stalemate continuing. And that's the issue, Jimmy. We have a very, very popular, long-standing prime minister, very popular with about 40, 45 percent of the electorate, very similar to um, a president that currently runs the United States, a very solid base, but with a lot of people, uh, at least an equal number, very much opposed to him and have been for some time. And, of course, he's uh, caught up in uh, three different cases, legal cases against him, Netanyahu is, and may be prosecuted, is being prosecuted, but may be convicted of those, and President Trump is facing the impeachment process. So very similar trends there, but in the American system, we don't go to new elections. Uh, They're still scheduled for next November, and that won't change, but in Israel's parliamentary system, of course, they can happen at any time. But all the opinion polls show, Jimmy, that while the blue and white party of Benny Gantz is going to pick up more seats, uh, 37 is the projection, that would be nearly a third of the Knesset, the Likud will still get around 31 to 32, so it's going to end up according to the polls now, about where it ended up last time, a little stronger on the blue and white, but still not enough for Gantz to form a coalition government without several other major parties, including the Russian-Israel-Betenu party of Lieberman. So that's the stalemate, and it continues. Yes, and we'll have uh, Winky Madad come to this broadcast table in a moment, go a bit more in-depth as we look at uh, the third election upcoming March the 2nd next year. This week, David, the Israeli foreign minister said bombing Iran to stop its nuclear program is an option. It's on the table. We haven't heard that kind of a talk in quite a while. Well, we haven't, Jimmy, but of course, until recent months, uh, Iran was more or less, uh, some say less, but abiding by this nuclear deal that President Obama arranged. They were not enriching uranium beyond what they were allowed. They were still continuing to do some. Now they've broken through that. They've come to the point where all the experts are saying they could have a nuclear weapon within just months. They certainly have continued with their ballistic missile upgrades and testing all along. That never stopped, which Israel at least considered a violation of U.N. agreements, but the Iranians were still doing that. So now the prospect of Iran getting nuclear weapons in the coming weeks and months is a very, very viable one, a very real one. That's the game changer here. And um, it's not being done in secret. They're openly spinning uranium at these higher levels, which means they are weapons-grade levels. And uh, it is a very grave threat, of course, to Israel. And Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, is not alone. Benny Gantz says it. Pretty much all Israeli politicians say that Iran acquiring nuclear weapons is totally off the table. They will not allow that to happen. If that takes a military strike, they'll do it. And, Jimmy, it would have the overwhelming support of uh, most Israelis. So that's just the reality on the ground, and that conflict is not over by any means. And, of course, Iran responding immediately, saying that they will give a crushing response to any Israeli aggression. So this could... uh, Spark that major war in the Middle East we often talk about. 
Well, it could, Jimmy, but we had an important pushback against Iran this week, and that came from Lebanon. Uh, Several of the uh, leaders of the country who are not Shiite Muslims strongly denounced a statement made by a leading Iranian military official that uh, a war could be launched exclusively from Lebanon, and that there's enough of a proxy force there, Hezbollah, the militia, with, as we know, well over 100,000 missiles, many of them now precision-guided so they can hit targets accurately from hundreds of miles away, uh, that they would maybe just uh, strike Israel from Lebanon alone. Well, again, that uh, produced this rebuke from the leaders of Lebanon, the other leaders of Lebanon, saying, no way, we're not going to allow our country to be used as a staging ground for a war that we're not initiating and that we don't want. So that has to give the Iranians pause. But, Jimmy, as I said last week, the economic sanctions are working. The pressure from the West and President Trump is working. We have the internal dissent in Iran growing and in other countries, including Lebanon and Iraq. And this may be cause for Iran to pull back, or it's just as likely it will be an incentive for them to really lash out and lash out soon. And the fierceness of their... Um, put down inside their own country of these protests against the rise of fuel prices and, well, really against the mullahs running the show for so long unelected indicates that they are willing to kill if they have to to stay in power. The Israelis are very, very aware of that, considering that their statements all the time are, we will wipe out Tel Aviv, we will wipe out Haifa, this sort of thing. We will destroy the Jewish state. David, what do you hear about Russia gaining influence with the Palestinians at the United States' expense? That's a very interesting development. Well, Jimmy, the Russians are gaining influence with everyone at the United States' expense, it seems, throughout the region. Uh, This includes Saudi Arabia. This includes several of the Gulf states. It definitely includes Egypt. It definitely includes Hamas and Islamic Jihad, the other Palestinian opposition groups, But, of course, the Palestinian Authority wants to get in on that act. And Vladimir Putin is just on a roll. wasn't started by Donald Trump. It was President Obama, really, that started to pull American influence back in the region by literally pulling troops out of the area initially. And, of course, President Trump has continued that to a certain extent, especially by scaling back. Now, he didn't pull all forces out of Syria like he originally said he would do, but scaling them back considerably, although they've increased troop presence in the Gulf. We've talked about that, and and U.S. uh, ships uh, have increased there in recent months. But overall, the president's view is we need to focus on America and not be involved in everybody else's wars. And there has been, of course, this ongoing war in Afghanistan for, well, since 9-11, really. It's a popular stand, as we know, in the United States. So uh, Putin is taking advantage of that and definitely stepping up his presence and support for the Palestinians is, of course, key to that. It's not so important militarily, but it is the cause that gets a lot of the Arab world going, even though um, a lot of them blame the Palestinian leadership and their internal disputes for the fact that they haven't been able to beat Israel or achieve any sort of real peace. Nevertheless, that is the darling cause, as it were, of the Middle East, and Putin knows that and is taking full advantage of that. David, the Jerusalem Post is reporting that Jewish prayers have returned to the Temple Mount 
even though it's in contradiction to Muslim law. Give us an update on that. Well, Jimmy, there's been two reasons why Jews have not been able to freely pray up on the Temple Mount all of these years since 1967 when they recaptured the old city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, of course, the heart of that. And that has been the Palestinian Waqf, the Muslim authorities that run the show up on top. But it's also, more importantly, been the Israeli police that have an outpost, as you know, on the northeast corner of the Temple Mount, a small building that I've been in uh, several times. And they would enforce that uh, status quo agreement, as it were, between Jordan and Israel that uh, Jews would not openly pray upon the Temple Mount. In recent years, the police have been turning uh, the other way, and this is, has been stepped up significantly in recent months, so that uh, more and more Jews are going up, gathering in small groups, especially near the Eastern Gate, the Golden Gate, in that area, which is the furthest you can get from the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque that's up there and the Dome of the Rock Shrine. It's in one well, really in the eastern edge of the Temple Mount, but still the police see this and have just not been enforcing that ban. And so the WAF still tries to, they still disrupt these prayer groups and scream and yell. I've seen this firsthand many times, actually, but it doesn't have the same strength as the Israeli police coming over and saying to their fellow countrymen, hey, you can't do this, this violates the status quo agreement. Well, it's just another uh, indication, Jimmy, that the Jewish interest in the Temple Mount is growing. Not that it hasn't always been strong, but it is growing. And again, that move towards rebuilding the Temple itself is also continuing to grow throughout the country. And of course, praying on the Temple Mount, a necessity when the Temple is up, training the Jewish people to be ready to do that is a part of this entire move as well. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East, he's done it for many years. He gives us his great insight when we ask him questions about the current events happening in this key region of the world. David, thank you so very much. Key report, good report today. We'll have another one next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to Winky Madad. Told you he'll go in-depth on the elections and the fact there's going to be a third one within one year. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As I said, we're here in temporary studios in Switzer, Indiana. 
and we're going to be here for the morning services only on Sunday. We spoke on Thursday night, and now we're going to be speaking tomorrow morning. I think tomorrow morning, I said, do you have any night service? He said, no. I said, when's the first morning service? He said, 8.15. I said, is not that the middle of the night? And he laughed, but indeed, we'll start at 8.15. And then in the evening, they're going to have a major, a major Christmas cantata. Judy and I will stay for that and make our way back home to Chattanooga on Monday morning before it starts to snow. They've already had some snow here in this part of Indiana, and I'm sure a lot of other locations where you may be listening to the broadcast have snow as well. Hope you can stay warm. It's very important. Winky Madad standing by. They were going to David Wilder. He is in the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world there in Hebron. We're going to be talking to David about the great gathering that they had, about 50,000 people there just a couple of weeks ago. And in addition to that, some new projects, some building projects going on. That'll be upcoming right after Winky Madad. Well, Winky, I guess it's official, a third election within one year. Can you believe that? I have to, Jimmy. There's some things you just cannot deny. (laughs) Uh, As we were discussing all through the process and the crises and the negotiations and trying to figure out the balances, I remind our listeners again, Israel is a parliamentary system, and just these past two elections, as ever, since 1949, no one party has ever gotten a full majority in the Knesset plenum of 61 seats out of the 120, and therefore we need coalition governments where the major party has smaller parties join up to pass over that 61-seat threshold. And these past two elections, although the two major parties by themselves could have set up a unity or a broad-based coalition. The differences were too much because, in the end, one party, the blue and white, did not want Benjamin Netanyahu to be the prime minister, either first, second, or last. And that was their guiding principle. Mr. Netanyahu, I think, justifiably said, I have not been proven guilty. By law, I do not have to resign. If anything else happens, I will have to follow the law. But you cannot force me to follow your, quote-unquote, moral public principles and resign. But I do hear, Winky, that it became very possible for this coalition to come together. Who was it? Was it the Blue-White Party and Gantz that uh, really stopped the whole thing? Well, Jimmy, I have to be fair here. I want to share blame between the Blue and White Party and Avigda Lieberman, who could have joined the Likud coalition with the other parties. He was in governments previously, even served as a minister. He helped out and cooperated with the uh, religious parties, both what we call the Sardi or the Eastern uh, Mediterranean Jewish uh, origin party, and the Aguda party, the ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi European party. This time he said no. So if he has principles, I, I can honor them. But he has to be blamed as much as anybody here for sending this to the third round of elections. Well, will all three be equally blamed for this happening? We will not know that, Jimmy, until March 2nd in the evening. And that's when people will be going 
to the polls once again. By the way, who most likely has the advantage by going to these third elections? Would it be Netanyahu, Avigdor Lieberman, or possibly Benny Gantz with the Blue-White Party? Jimmy, I suppose you have me on because I can give you perspectives that normally most people don't think about. And in that vein, I have to point out that the Likud goes to internal primaries in another two weeks. If there is a, I'm looking for a good adjective here, a considerable, authentic push against Mr. Netanyahu within that Likud vote. For example, we now know that a member of Knesset and a former minister, Gidon Saar, is going to challenge Netanyahu. If he gets anywhere between 30 or around 30 or so percent of the vote, that will damage Netanyahu's public image, not among the Likud. I think the Likud is strongly behind him, but it could damage his public appeal to those people who are not quite Likud, but they're not quite anything else. So I leave that up in the air as, as a factor, which I cannot judge right now until we know what's the result of those primaries. You mentioned that the prime minister is going to continue his position as the leader of the caretaker government. They tried to force him to resign, did they not? But I think the Supreme Court ruled on Netanyahu's side. Is that pretty much correct? Uh, the Supreme Court and the state attorney, what we call in Hebrew the legal advisor, made it quite clear that the law does not obligate Mr. Netanyahu to resign just because a charge of criminal conduct has been delivered to the court, tabled, and a trial has been set. One of the main reasons, which is funny enough, Jimmy, uh, that they're trying to say he must resign because he needs the time to deal with matters. I think we once touched about this maybe two months ago. Mr. Netanyahu is quite a capable fellow. He can deal with diplomacy, foreign affairs, security, economics, science, technology, and a load of other things like that. And all of a sudden they say can't deal with a court trial when most of that work is done by his lawyers. Mm. You know, he doesn't need more than an hour or so a day to hear what they're doing and give them the okay to continue their line of uh, legal conduct. I mean, they're making up stories here, which is a little bit ridiculous. It doesn't do any of the politicians honor uh, to make such claims. He's capable, uh, and I think he's proven in the past 10 years to be a very good prime minister. Uh, and until any sort of criminal charges are proven, I don't think he has to do anything that would take him out of his office. Are the people upset and tired of the campaigning? I think they have uh, less than 90 days before the elections on March the 2nd. But are they going to go full bore ahead, all the parties endeavoring to try to uh, once again, form a party and then thus a coalition to produce a prime minister? They're going to be going full bore? They've already started, Jimmy. Uh, the campaign has already been, uh, you know, certain slogans or certain buzzwords, shall we say, have already been up in the air. Uh, it won't get really started, of course, until either primaries or any other things finish by the end of the month of December. But, I mean... We know quite well what's going down. The problem is, can either of the two major parties convince another 5% of the voters to move to their side and put an end to this uh, inability to have a large block that would take the 61 seats? 
I imagine, Winky, that we'll have to have more conversations between now and the end of 90 days, March the 2nd, when the next election takes place. So we'll stay on top of this story with you if you'll allow us to do that. One other item I want to touch base with before I let you go. Uh, The President of the United States on Wednesday signed an anti-Semitism executive order. Now, I don't know you being way over there in Israel if you were on top of that story. If you were, is that good? Is that bad? What are your thoughts? First of all, it's not only good, it's excellent. And what I was only disappointed in is most of the people against it were some leftist radical Jews (laughs) who realized that it was there mainly because of what has been happening on campuses. I think we've discussed it also in the past, because we try, you and I, Jimmy, to be true to our listeners and give them the best. Jews on campuses have been beaten, have been threatened, have been verbally assaulted, have been had their events closed down, and the rhetoric used is anti-Semitic. But they claim it's freedom of speech, because all they're doing is criticizing Zionism and Jewish nationalism and the state of Israel. Well, this executive order makes it quite clear. Whether or not Jews want to be regarded as a nation, a people, a religion, or an ethnic community, if you read carefully, that executive order simply says it's what the anti-Semite perceives the Jew as. And therefore, to act against that would put that person, whether he's black, whether he's Arab, whether he's Christian, in danger of having his educational institution, the college or the university, suffer financial difficulties because the government will withhold funds. This is what the executive order about. It wasn't about punishing people. It was saying if an institution allows us to go on, they're going to get punished. In other words, forcing the educational institution to rein in what's this wild rhetoric and, and antics and activities that are forcing Jews to be ashamed to be Jewish, to raise up their heads and and use their own freedom of speech, which they're trying to take away from them. Boy, this is great news from you, Winky. You observe everything. You have great knowledge in all political and media matters as well. And it's great to hear your analysis of this executive order. Well, thank you, Winky, for being available both on the election situation in Israel and on this question about the executive order on anti-Semitism. I am absolutely convinced we'll have a number of conversations between now and next March the 2nd. Thank you, my good friend. We'll talk again real soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me on the program, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Great conversation with Winky Medad, updating us on what is so confusing. I don't see how Winky was able to even work it out to give us a report. The elections... It is official. They're going to a third election. Well, we'll have about 90 days that we'll be covering that. We'll keep you updated almost on a weekly basis if we can. This is going to be key to understand who the leadership of Israel will be in the future. We're going to stay in Israel right now. We're going to go over to Hebron. Hebron is the second most sacred piece of real estate in all of Judaism. Abraham moved there 4,000 years ago, and he established the first Jewish community in the Promised Land. 
and we go to the man who is now covering Hebron for us here on Prophecy Today, David Wilder, longtime resident of Hebron, longtime friend of us here on Prophecy Today. David, a lot of things I want to talk to you about. As I understand it, I was reading the other day that there are sites that were actually purchased, and it's recorded in the Bible, which would be then, of course, the title deed. The two key would be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and the Cave of the Patriarchs, Machpelah Cave burial site for the three patriarchs. Now, David, am I correct? The Bible is the title deed for these two very special holy sites, the Temple Mount and the Cave of Machpelah. That's correct, and and you were also correct in saying that there's a third one, the third one being Joseph's tomb in Shrem, which is more known in English as Nablus. Those three real estate transactions are all recorded in the Bible, and it's also very interesting you bring them up because probably three of the most controversial places that our neighbors claim we have no hold to whatsoever are, of course, Joseph's tomb, which today we have almost no access to, Temple Mount, where access is very limited, and our neighbors say that, that we have no rights to be there. And, of course, here in Hebron, the caves of Machpelah, which also they claim we should not be able to access or pray at. You know, I'm very much concerned not only about your neighbors, and I would imagine you're talking about the Arab and the Muslim people in that particular area, but UNESCO itself, they are claiming these three sites do not have any connection to Jews and Judaism. Boy, that's a forest. That's a lie if I've ever heard one. Would you not agree? Yeah, well, we're very familiar with UNESCO and, of course, its mother organization, the United Nations, and their attitudes towards the state of Israel and the rights of the Jews here in Israel. Thankfully, the United States pulled out of UNESCO, as did Israel, so that their uh, influence here has uh, dwindled quite a bit. But they're very obviously against us and against any rights that we may have here. It's nothing new. We've been dealing with this kind of stuff for a long time. I know that uh, there was a very exciting gathering of over 50,000 Jews and maybe some Christians as well that came to Hebron for the purpose of celebrating uh, Genesis chapter 23. Now, the Jewish people read through the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, on a yearly basis. And Genesis 23, which is the record of Abraham purchasing Machpelah Cave, this was a great gathering, was it not? Oh, it was unreal. It was totally unbelievable. We, we started with this kind of public celebration, I guess, it's about, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, and it's just mind-boggling how the numbers have kept going up. Uh, last year, I don't know, we had about uh, 25,000 people or what, something like that, and this year we had over 40,000 people. It's a, it's a once-in-a-year kind of uh, an event where you have so many people. There are, there are people that come from all over the world, literally from all over the world, just to be here for that weekend, for that Shabbat. There were big tents that were set up, I mean, really huge tents that were set up across the street from the Tomb of the Patriarchs that fed 6,000 people three meals. And uh, there were tents, the little tents that people had up all over the place, and people brought in uh, these mobile trailer kinds of things. They brought them in a week in advance because for about two days, 
before Shabbat, it was forbidden for any 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 vehicles, moving vehicles, the people that didn't live here to come actually come down in Hebron. Otherwise, nobody would have been able to move. There would have been a big, just a big traffic jam. And here at my house, we have every year we have people sleeping on the floor in my living room. Uh, it's the one time during the year somebody calls and says, "Yes, if they can come." They say, well, we've only got room on the floor. And they said, that's great. Just, you know, as long as we can come, we just want to be there. Uh, And so that's the way we've had it here for years now. It's a big lift. You know, you see so many people that come here from all over the world. It's a tremendous show of support, both by Jews and by Uh, non-Jews. You've got everybody here. So it's really a fantastic event. It's a tremendous show of support. Uh, And we're not the only people that see the numbers. The Arabs see the numbers, the United States, the Europeans. It, it shows them uh, that we're here to stay. You know, we're not just a group of 80, 85 families. We're a family of, of hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, we enjoy it a whole lot. And the people that came in enjoyed it a whole lot. Yeah, wish we could have been there. That would have been one exciting time. In that area, in Hebrew, the term Keriat Arba is talking about the village of the four. Now, we're talking about the cave where the patriarchs are buried, that would be three families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. And I understand the fourth in that quartet that are buried there at Mepila Cave would be Adam and Eve. That pretty much on target? That's 100% correct. According to very, very ancient uh, Jewish tradition, as brought down in some of our holiest literature, it's written that Abraham actually discovered the caves of, of Machpelah when he went into this this dark cave, and he saw a light at the end of it, and he went in to see where the light was coming from, and there he found candles lit at the tombs of Adam and Eve. It's written that after they were exiled from the Garden of Eden, they wanted to go back. They liked it there. It was nice, but they didn't know where it was. So it's written that they searched until they came to a particular place where they could smell the unique fragrances of the Garden of Eden, and the first man then, it's written, dug a cave within a cave until a voice from the heavens told him that that's as far as he could go, and that's where Eve was buried, that's where he was later buried. Actually, the site remained hidden until Abraham discovered this, and realizing how how important the place was, how significant, how holy it was, uh, he decided when the opportunity presented itself, he would purchase this so it would be for for his family and for his, his people. And as such, he paid... 400 silver shekels, as recorded in the Bible. Uh, and just, you know, if people want to have an idea what a cave costs in Hebron, today that's valued at about $700,000. So uh, I always tell people to come in if they want a cheaper cave, I can find them a cheaper cave. But that was, <laughs> you know, but that was how it all started. Yes, that's an exciting story. And it's just a unbelievable place, a sacred place for sure, as it relates to the Jewish people. I understand that the Minister of Defense, Naftali Bennett, has approved some new residential areas there in Hebron, which is actually going to be about twice what you have there today. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's, it's really, you have to be here to believe it. This is a project that we've been working on now for over two decades. This is property that's recognized by the courts as Jewish-owned property, in the 1960s, when the Jordanians were here, after they occupied this area, after the Israeli War of Independence, there were private Arab vendors that built some buildings on this property. They used it as, a, as an open market. 
the market's been closed now for, I don't know, since uh, the 1990s, I think, or the beginning of the 2000s. And the courts have never let us to utilize this property to be able to build buildings. And finally, the uh, Attorney General, together with other people, found a way out of of all sorts of, of legal nonsense that had been created to prevent us from using the property. And a couple of weeks ago, Bennett, who's the new uh, defense minister, finally issued the permits allowing us to start planning for a new neighborhood there. We're planning, hopefully, with God's help, we're planning 70 apartments there. And that's in addition to another 30 apartments that are going to be built in another area fairly close to there. So you're talking about another 100 families in Hebron, together with what you've got today, about 85 families. So we're going to be close to 200 families, and hopefully that'll continue. There are other areas here that we can uh, utilize, and as soon as uh, we get the permits to do so, we will, and the community will continue to grow. That's a great report with David Wilder, the man who we go to when we want to talk about Hebron, the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world. All this is key for what is going on today and God's fulfillment of all the promises to the Jewish people. David, excellent report. Thank you so very much, my good friend. I hope we have occasion to talk again real soon. Thanks, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Shalom, shalom. Very important information coming from David Wilder as it relates to the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world, dating back some 4,000 years to the times of Abraham. We'll stay on top of this story. A lot of activity taking place in Hebron. Well, we've got another story that's really unbelievable. We're going to go to John Rood. He covers the European Union for us. And John, you know, we've talked about Brexit so many, many times here on the broadcast. We'll talk about Brexit in a moment. But I guess the number one lead story has to be Boris Johnson winning the British elections by a landslide. Talk to me about it. Very interesting course of events here. The elections were touted as being too close to call, and then during the election process, the media is not allowed to make any statements. And yet, when we have the results, it's a, it's a total landslide. So Boris Johnson has been the most electorally successful conservative leader now since Margaret Thatcher. They have gained, the conservatives have gained 50 seats in the parliament. Of course, this makes a tremendous balance concerning the process for Brexit. But Jeremy Corbyn, who we've spoken of quite frequently in the broadcast, the labor leader, now he's turned into the most unpopular leader in a generation, and he will have to stand down as the party leader. But it, it just seems that his uh, strongly anti-Semitic stand that has pervaded the party and brought up hundreds of questionable incidents, it does appear that that was a major part of this. And so now Boris Johnson is strongly at the helm and being able to work forward towards Brexit. Well, let's go towards that Brexit thought. What about the fact now with this new parliamentary majority that he basically has, is Brexit going to be a foregone conclusion? (laughs) That is something. Because we have three and a half years now since the U.K. voted to leave the European Union. This, I would say, absolute is is a very strong term. Uh, It's a major step towards alleviating the hurdles. So there are several steps that have to be considered here. 
Now that Boris Johnson has this powerful new mandate to get Brexit done, he has the majority in Parliament, and they have to pass a Brexit deal now by January 31st deadline, or it's the same situation as before. That should be possible. But now the EU has its new leadership, and there's going to be a new phase of negotiation with the EU 27 nations. They say they're ready to negotiate, so we have something new on both sides. So we're going to head towards this period of redefining the EU relationship with the United Kingdom. So Brexit should go ahead, but they're going to define what that is. For example, the trade deal between the United Kingdom and the European Union has to be by the end of 2020. We're going into a transition period, so Brexit is going ahead. Well, we'll stay on top of this story as it continues to develop. Uh, but, and, and John, we could go deeper now. No use in doing that because all we would be doing is just analyzing what really did happen. Talk to me about Europe no longer hiding its hostility towards Israel. This is not a, a very good move for the Jewish state. The European Union sort of unofficially tries to be a a fair player in the eyes of the world stage towards the Middle East, but certainly it's completely one-sided towards the Palestinian Authority. The European Union, as we know, has been the biggest donor of external assistance to Palestinian Authority, $2.8 billion in just over 10 years. But part of that budget is really uh, towards funding terrorists and terrorist families. So they can't necessarily hide the increasing hostility. Uh, Also, we've covered in November, the European Court of Justice made the ruling that the Israeli products uh, could not be from from certain territory, could not carry the label made in Israel. So the European Court singles out Israel, and then we see as well that even some of the diplomatic statements, uh, we see this stark contrast between the European Union statements and the U.S. statements, for example, in November when there were more than 450 rockets that were fired on Israel in in less than two-day period. European Union statement leaves out, fails to mention some very key facts, and then the United States statement speaks of Israel being as a friend. We can see a conclusion that the United States is a friend of Israel and the hierarchy of the European Union is not. Yes, that's the way it seems to be unfolding. And again, another story we need to stay on top of, European Union infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. That seems to be moving along very, very quickly now. Exciting news, historic news from John Rood covering the elections there in Great Britain. Thank you, John. We'll talk again next week with more information about both of these stories we've covered. Thank you. We'll see these things move ahead. We're going to have to take a break right now. When we come back after the news at the top of the hour, David James is going to be talking about the executive order that President Trump issued this last week. He did it on anti-Semitism. Very interesting development. We'll talk with David James in a moment, right here on Prophecy Today. This is Jimmy DeYoung at our temporary studios here in Sweetser, Indiana. We're here at the Liberty Baptist Church. 
I'll be speaking on Sunday morning a Christmas message from the prophetic passages of God's Word. It's in Micah where I'll go. Not only Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem Euphrata, but also Micah chapter 4 verse 8 that tells us Migdal Adar, the tower of the flock, is key to the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Come and join us here in Switzer, Indiana at the Liberty Baptist Church. After the broadcast is over, if you'll go to my website, prophecytoday.com, on the home page, you'll find my poll question on the left-hand column, if you'll scroll down. Here's the question. This week, President Trump signed an executive order against anti-Semitism. Also in Great Britain, Boris Johnson defeated an anti-Semitic Labour Party candidate named Corbyn in the British national elections. Do you believe that anti-Semitism is a disgrace in our world today that must be defeated? Well, that's the poll question. Answer it if you will. I want to remind you, Christmas shopping is happening right now. The one-stop Christmas shopping headquarters would be my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to the Prophecy Bookstore. You'll find all the items that are at reduced prices for Christmas shoppers. That website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a conversation on a weekly basis. We deal with issues that may well be confronting the body of Christ, the people in our churches, born-again Bible-believing people, and we endeavor to give a biblical perspective to all of these issues so we can know better how to walk our daily walk with the Lord. David, we catch you right there in the middle of a month off from international travel after a very full year of ministry. Are you getting some rest, buddy? Well, I'm getting some rest. As our listeners know, it has been very busy as we've had our weekly discussions from literally all over the world. And I've just about finished a survey of the book of Romans, and the main part of the book is done, and now I'm adding some questions for discussion so it can be used for Bible studies or teaching in Sunday schools or other classes. But I hope to have it in print by the end of January and also plan to have a Kindle version ready about the same time. And so uh, we can talk about that whenever uh, I have that ready. David, on Wednesday, in the midst of the impeachment process, President Trump took yet another historic stand for the nation of Israel and for the Jewish people. Talk to us about that. Well, CNN ran an article on Thursday with the title, Trump's Anti-Semitism Executive Order Explained, and this was uh, an informative and helpful article. Let me quote from the first couple of paragraphs. It says, President Donald Trump signed an executive order on Wednesday expanding his administration's interpretation of race and national origin to include Judaism, a move that extends certain civil rights protections to Jews in education settings. And then it goes on to say, the move is part of the Trump administration's broader efforts to combat what it considers anti-Israel and anti-Semitic movements on college campuses. But the order has ignited debate over federal funding, free speech, and views about Israel, and prompted renewed questions about how Jewish people should be classified by the government. 
So this order is related to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which included a provision that prevented federally funded schools from discrimination based on someone's national origin. And what this executive order does is expands on the Civil Rights Act by uh, threatening to defund educational institutions that support or tolerate anti-Israel movements such as the BDS movement. Now, BDS stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, and it's designed to hurt companies based in Israel or that do business with Israel by either boycotting their products or by selling off shares in company stock or to have countries slap sanctions on anyone doing business with Israel. And, Jimmy, given Jewish history, I think it's significant that Hanukkah was chosen for the signing of this executive order. David, you mentioned that the bill was actually signed, not on Hanukkah itself, but during this Hanukkah season there at the White House. They had a Hanukkah party, and that's very significant. We'll get to that in just a moment. But we all know that Hanukkah and Christmas are close together on our calendar each year. Actually, Hanukkah beginning on December the 22nd, going through the December 30th date, eight days of Hanukkah and overlapping with Christmas time. We'll have more on that in this program prophecy today when we come closer to that date. But many listeners, David, may not understand the background for this Jewish feast. Can you give us a bit more information? Sure. Well, Hanukkah is a wintertime Jewish festival that's sometimes called the Feast of Lights because each night there's a menorah lighting in the home. Uh, Now, this feast isn't found in the Law of Moses, but it does come from events found in 1st and 2nd Maccabees of the Old Testament Apocrypha. Those books were included by the Jews of Alexandria, but not the Jews of Israel. Now, the Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication, and this is the name of the feast because it celebrates the rededication of the second Jewish temple after it was desecrated by the Greeks around 167 B.C. And leading up to this desecration of the temple, the severe persecution of the Jews by the Syrian Greeks was led by Antiochus the Great and then his son, uh, who ruled part of the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander the Great. Now his son took the title Epiphanes, which means to reveal or make manifest, and what this meant was that Antiochus IV saw himself as a manifestation of God. So in order to establish his dominance over the Jews and over their God, he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and thus defiled the temple. And this led to an uprising by a small group of freedom fighters led by Judas Maccabeus, who were actually able to defeat the Greek forces against all odds. And as part of the rededication of the temple, they had to relight the menorah, but there was only enough pure oil for one day instead of the eight that they needed to prepare new oil. So according to tradition, the miracle of Hanukkah is that this small amount of oil didn't run out. Well, David, as you mentioned earlier, it does seem significant that Hanukkah, or the season of Hanukkah, and a Hanukkah party there at the White House was chosen as the day for the signing of this executive order by President Trump. 
Well, there's no doubt about it, Jimmy. You know, there are no coincidences in Washington, and there are no coincidences when it comes to anything in the geopolitical realm, and especially when it comes to the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Well, first we need to remember that the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is Jewish, and his daughter, Ivanka, has also converted to Judaism. And beyond that, Trump is seen by many, including by many Jews, as perhaps the most pro-Israel president in history. Uh, back in March of last year, the Times of Israel ran an article with a title, Who is King Cyrus and why did Netanyahu compare him to Trump? And the opening paragraph of that article said this, Before their Oval Office meeting on Monday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu lavished praise on President Donald Trump for, among other things, declaring Jerusalem as Israel's capital and vowing to fix or scrap the Iran nuclear deal. In doing so, the Israeli leader likened Trump to Harry Truman, Lord Balfour, and Cyrus the Great. And we first read about what God did through the Persian king Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1, where we read, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So, Jimmy, whatever this president's motivations, I do think he understands that he's establishing his legacy and his place in history, and the meaning of Hanukkah relates to God's protection of his people in the face of anti-Semitism. You know, that's really exciting to think about this season of Hanukkah and what did take place there at the White House. Well, you mentioned that Hanukkah is not found in what the Jews of today consider their scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. But we do find something about Hanukkah in the New Testament. Talk to us about that. Well, that's right. And it may be that many have never realized that it's mentioned very specifically in the Gospel of John. It's mentioned right in the middle of a series of disputes that Jesus was having with the Pharisees, and these disputes were all centered around Jesus' identity, who he was. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Then in verses 14 and 15, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and have known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then moving on to verse 22, we read, Now it was the Feast of Dedication. That's the Feast of Hanukkah. So now at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And then after talking about giving eternal life to his sheep, Jesus says, I am and the Father are one. And it was for this that the Jews were ready to execute him by stoning for blasphemy. Another important part of John's narrative is what he says back in chapter 1, where he says that Jesus was the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. David, this has been a great pre-lesson 
for the period actual Hanukkah when it does take place, December 22 through 30, eight days of the special Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah, as the Jewish people call it today. We'll remember this when we get to that time in the broadcast year and rehearse it once again for our listeners. But let me just say this, David. Some try to say that the prophecies by Daniel about the abomination of desolation, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, were fulfilled with the desecration of the temple in 167 B.C., but we know from scriptures that this cannot be the case. The fulfillment of Daniel 9 must still be in the future. Well, one of the things we find in Scripture is that God occasionally orchestrates events so that they foreshadow even greater future events. For example, in Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, that passage is about the great and terrible day of the Lord that is coming, but there have been many lesser days of the Lord throughout history that foreshadow this far worse day of the Lord that's still coming. So examples of lesser days of the Lord would include when he used the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then later the Romans to bring judgment against his people. So even though Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple under the delusion that he was God, we know this wasn't the ultimate abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, because almost 200 years later, Jesus spoke about a future event of that same name in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read about the revelation of the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So not only will there be a desecration of the coming third temple by the Antichrist, there will also also be a great Hanukkah when Jesus dedicates his new temple, the fourth one, in the millennial kingdom. And that fourth temple, described there in the book of Ezekiel, 202 verses in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 46. Well, a great lesson not only in biblical history, in biblical prophecy, uh, but talking to us about the executive order that President Trump did sign during this season at a Hanukkah party there at the White House. David, thank you very much for this conversation. It was needed for the body of Christ to understand all that is related to this executive order. Appreciate it so much. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks, Jimmy. It's always great to be with you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services. 
services and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Reports from our broadcast partners from all over the world coming in to Broadcast Central here. Ken Timmerman in the nation of Georgia, not the state, but the nation of Georgia located in Europe. Winky Madad and David Wilder reporting from Israel and those broadcast partners key to our news updates that will help us understand the evidence, these reports giving us evidence of how the stage is set for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. If you missed any of these reports, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you will find all of these reports archived, available for you to listen to when it's at your convenience to be able to do that, but it'll give you information that will help you understand the times in which we're living. And because of that fact, if you have a friend that's studying Bible prophecy, send them the link to these reports. This will encourage them as well. That's prophecytoday.com. Then go to Prophecy Today Radio Network for the interviews. Today on the broadcast, we had key reports, for example, from Ken Timmerman. He was not in the United States. He was not in Italy, but in the nation of Georgia on the European continent. He was there as it's related to an Iranian who is a very important witness. He's trying to keep him from out of jail. And also, Ken told us, he wanted to try to lead him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sure to pray for Ken in his ministry with this man. Ken gave us a report that the foreign minister of Israel has said, and he did this in a meeting in Rome, Italy, that bombing Iran 
would be a consideration in order to stop the production of a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Now, that has indeed been on the table as an option for the Israeli government. Prime Minister Netanyahu told me personally that if indeed his intelligence community would relay to him that they had that nuclear weapon, they were mounting it on a Shahab-3 missile, their long-range delivery system, that they would do a preemptive strike on the Iranian Republic. Now, the foreign minister saying that option is on the table, and he's very serious about the opportunity to use that option to shut down the Iranian nuclear weapon production, a weapon of mass destruction. God's word says that Iran is a major player. Ezekiel 38.5 mentions Persia. That is modern-day Iran. They will be a part of an alignment. Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, mentions the noise out of the east. That would be Iran as well. And they will play a key role in the alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel with an effort to destroy this Jewish state that their name be forgotten forever. David Dolan is a longtime journalist in the Middle East, over 30 years, gives him great insight into whatever may be happening. And in fact, on the same subject of Iran, as Ken was talking about, Iran said that if indeed Israel does do that preemptive strike, Iran will give a crushing response to any Israeli aggression, and in particular, that preemptive strike. Well, we know that the alignment of nations, that coalition found in Psalm 83, Daniel 11, and Ezekiel 38, they will come together under the leadership of Russia. They will go after the Jewish state. What we see happening today is all preparation for that to happen. As you study those prophetic passages just mentioned, you'll see that that stage is set for all of these prophecies to be fulfilled. Winky Madad came with the sad news that Israel is going to go to a third election, and that third election in one year. That's an historic event. It's never happened in the state of Israel. I'm not sure if it's ever happened any place in the entire world. But as of midnight last Wednesday, the decision was made that they would dissolve the Knesset and go to a third election, that election taking place March the 2nd in 2020. You know, government was set in place by the Lord to direct humankind. The Bible says in Revelation 17, 17, that the Lord will put in the hearts and minds of political leaders to make decisions that will set Bible prophecy in place, which will be the fulfillment of God's plan for this world. We watch as political leaders continually make decisions, and that follows up with a prophetic scenario being set in place. That is the case as it relates to the Israeli elections as well. David Wilder, he lives in Hebron. That's the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world, dating back some 4,000 years ago. David gave us a report on construction for residential locations for Jewish people, which would double the population of Hebron. Remember, Hebron is the second most sacred city in all of Judaism, second only to Jerusalem itself. It's the location of the burial site for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, 
and also Adam and Eve. That's what David Wilder related to us today on the broadcast. A big election victory in Great Britain. Boris Johnson elected to head up the Conservative Party. He defeated his anti-Semite Corbyn opponent from the Labour Party. That's what John gave us on his report on the European Union. And again, the political in the European Union setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. The European Union, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. And then at the White House in a special Hanukkah party meeting, Donald Trump signed an executive order against anti-Semitism. I had a conversation with David James. That's exactly what we focused on. And the fact that it was a Hanukkah party was quite unique as well. David explains that. If you go listen to what he had to say, it'll be very informative, and we'll have more on Hanukkah in next week's broadcast. Well, all of these items that we've talked about, all tangible evidence that the rapture is not very far away. In fact, that rapture could even happen today. Have you ever read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he gives a description of the rapture? He says that we shall be caught up, including himself. I believe that is the case today as well. And having said that, nothing left for me to say. Except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.